Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, where change agents in social sectors, business, and community and faith meet at the intersection of belonging and imagination and gifts. I'm your host, Troy Bronsink, from The Hive in Cincinnati, Ohio. What began as a friendship between Peter Block and John McKnight and Walter Brueggemann has grown now into a fellowship program where for 12 weeks, 30 fellows from around the world are working together through what it means to journey into the common good and uh, looking at it specifically through their own experiments of imagination. This season is focusing on the work of those fellows as well as the advisors and hosts of that program. Today we're talking with Rama Naidu, who's from uh, Durban, South Africa. He works in organizational development, working with leaders in diversity and transformation and the art of uh, community building. He's the executive director of the Democracy Development Program, and a lot of his work is as facilitator with the nation of South Africa on their Partners of Possibility program. I really slow things down at that point and say it's okay not to take responsibility right now. But are we aware that when we do speak, when we claim our freedom, what is the cost to yourself and to the other? Our conversation touches on the structure of belonging and the ways that change happens in community and primarily around stewardship, uh, leadership that's not simply uh, um, hierarchical, but about understanding shared responsibility and instilling responsibility in communities. Our conversation kicks off as he's describing the DDP, this project that he founded. I've always been in Durban and worked for a program, in fact, started the the program called the Democracy Development Program. And the whole idea was about citizen empowerment and embedding democracy. And and very quickly I learned that uh, democracy is not a concept that can be learned or taught, except through direct experience of a benefit or something coming out of it. And that shifted me into a space to try and uh, question the big words like empowerment and saving people and teaching people and leading them to the chosen land. And I, and I kind of knew intuitively it didn't work. But uh, in the absence of any other model of looking at it, that, that was the paradigm that we were given uh, about a, a, you know, a leader-led organization, leader-led structure, very patriarchal structure. And about 10 years down the line, uh, Peter came to South Africa, wham. It just, it just hit me about the fact that we had so little understanding of how communities really work and the dynamics of it, that I had to go back to a clean canvas again and rethink the work of the organization. So based on that input, I restructured the entire process of the organization to be community-centered and for the learning to be incidental to their daily lives so that they, in fact, didn't have to teach democracy. They learned through it experientially, through their projects, through the dilemmas, through the questions, through the protests. And that, of course, continued to deepen as I went into the neighborhoods and and experienced brokenness, experienced the notion of single stories of poverty at the coalface and having to unlearn a whole lot of stuff about uh, my own story of broken communities and of poverty and having to work through a completely new way of viewing this. And, and of course, that once, once that shift had happened in my mind, uh, everything since that time has been around the notion of, of activating, uh, raising awareness, letting people do their own work. And so it was a natural step to kind of imbibe everything that Peter had put into his book so beautifully and try and take it, adapt it to our context in South Africa and see how we work in a, in a country that has been so battered and ravaged 
a legacy of apartheid, of inequality, very different from the American model as you have it now, uh, and really uh, trying to work under difficult circumstances, one in which people believe that they had to be uh, in a situation of hands out, you know, let me wait and some, hopefully somebody will give us something, to asking the other questions, so what do we have that we can start to work on? How do we reclaim our dignity, our sense of work, and those kind of things. And that means it's given me opportunities to be uh, very open to listening to what's happening in these spaces and work with what we have. Mm. Well, t tell us a little bit about what's happening. Like, would, would you feel comfortable sharing a, a story where that transition to activating and people doing their own work, what, the, what that journey's like? So very often it, it starts off, uh, you know, with a community or NGO, nonprofit organization contacting us to say, uh, can you help us? We've got a problem. And, this, and they always come up with a problem. So what's the problem? It's the same everywhere. It's teenage pregnancy. It's drugs. It's unemployed youth. All the stuff that we all know about so well. Those make it across the ocean to us too. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, the first thing I would do is, is and this particular community went in uh, for three days. Luckily, we were able to get a big uh, in, uh, academic institution to fund it. Uh, to gather this community, the leaders, the churches, the principals together, 300 of them into a big hall and to talk about the community. Mm. And we use the methodology, you know, the small groups, yep. and, uh, and people were very, very skeptical about the process, even people who were helping me co-facilitate. It was just a new way of being in the world. Yeah. And, and day one uh, was difficult because people were not getting it. But as the small groups started their work, uh, with no intention of getting to a product quickly, uh, no commitments, and really taking our time about that. By the second half of the second day, something magical started to happen in the room. The, the, the I, the individuals, began to own part of that conversation. Uh, you know, you had the schools and the churches, and, and instead of abdicating responsibility, quite powerfully stood up and took responsibility in the room. And, yeah. and my question was, you know, at that point... You know, people clap, and I said, hold your applause. The work hasn't started yet. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the kind of easy part. You know, we all stand up and grandstand. So um, the first guy stood up and said, I I'll do this work. I, I, in front of the group, I said, okay, let's see what this means. What is it that you want to do? How will you do it? What does your commitment mean to this group? Do you understand what your commitment means? And took them through a process. And uh, at the end of that, of, of that not, I wouldn't call it an interrogation, but mm, saying, but do you close, understand yeah. Yeah, what you're saying and whether you'll do it and what it means if you don't do it to this community? And wow. that kind of set things going because the, the, the other commitments didn't come thick and fast anymore. But they went a lot deeper into this space. They set up small, small work groups, ended up after three days with just two projects. One was let's own the neighborhood. Wow. Just let's own the neighborhood. And I asked us, what would, that, what, what would that entail? Where can you start that requires no money, no outside help, just what you have inside your community? And so they said it would be a park cleanup. Mm -hmm. No money. First Sunday of the month, they would gather at the park. So I told them, listen, I've, I'll, I'll turn up at the park. And I'm half skeptical that they would, <laughs> would anyone ever turn up. But they did. They turned up, they cleaned the park, and after that it was history. You know, once they started the work, 
it's interesting. Once you start it and people see it happening, the city saw that happening. Mm-hmm. And so now that park has become an out, outdoor gym. It's maintained by the city now wants to put money, money into something that is working. So the notion of, you know, once you start something, other people are more likely to join into the initiative, even with resources. So from that project, the churches started getting involved. The schools started getting involved. This was three or four years ago. I mean, every time I go into that community, I see something new happening there. It's not all easygoing, but the sense is that notion of, of ownership and what commitment means is embedded in the community. So wherever we go into into a community, and there are many stories like that, the notion is always to let people begin to understand, first of all, that you're not coming as an expert and you don't come with resources. That throws the two big elephants out of the room. And then they say, now what the hell do we do? You know, we don't have money because the first thing is, are you bringing money? Once you get that out of the room, uh, then people start to look at, so what do we have? And so I really slow that process down to get people to begin to feel what the notion of gifts is. Because for many of them, that notion of gifts and abundance does not exist in the paradigm of the world. There's is a mentality of scarcity and self-interest. Even yeah. for the communities that feel scarce, they, the temptation is to find a partner that will, that will bring the resources. Absolutely. So it it, it Absolutely. bakes a power dynamic into the beginning of the relationship. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, so the idea is as we go into the and so what the organization has created a number of partners throughout our city area who we walk with along the way. So once we do the initial workshop and they set up their committees, we then uh, do what we call accompaniment. So it's, we're available to them as a human resource. Should they come across a dilemma, they want a bank of good questions, they want to work through something. So we simply go in and facilitate that. And the intention is be, behind that is to be in the shadow. Always let them take center stage and stay fairly invisible in the space. So that, you know, for many of them, as they uh, facilitate a workshop for the first time, uh, it's a very powerful experience because they they didn't think it possible. They also think it's rocket science yeah. until they learn that, <laughs> that, the, that the methodology which is, is actually quite simple. Convene the damn group, put them in small groups and make them talk. Peter's book, Community, the Structure of Belonging, he writes, the real task of leadership is to confront people with their freedom. This may be the ultimate act of love that is called for from those who hold power over others. Choosing our freedom is also the source of our willingness to choose to be accountable. The insight is that freedom is what creates accountability. He continues, freedom is not an escape from accountability as popular culture so often misunderstands, but rather that freedom is what creates accountability. Freedom is a risky place to be. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not so easy. To, freedom, we might all want it. But even the wanting of freedom is, is also has the, the opposite side of that. I, I want the freedom, but what does it mean in terms of my responsibility? Keep going with that, that language of responsibility. And when we were first talking, we, you, were mentioned, you mentioned stewardship. Uh, yeah. Yeah, talk a little more about that um, responsibility and stewardship of freedom. You know, you know, the notion in many of the communities that we work in, they are uh, what I would call self-appointed leaders, whether they come from the churches or their, their professional status as a principal of a school or, or something like a businessman. And that uh, that role is one of leading people to a space. So, so what's happened is that the leader has kind of taken the responsibility. You know, I will lead you. I will take responsibility for you. 
And so the notion of parent-child relationship is very strong. Mm-hmm. And, and they've been like that for a long, long time. So when you confront people with their freedom, they're reluctant to step up because they're cynical about what this means for them. They, they're cynical about when you say uh, you, you can s- say something and not be judged, when you can disagree with something and there's nothing in the room that says, wow, I did something really wrong here. And then when you confront people with the issue of, so what does it mean to be free as a conversation? Uh, most people shut down because one, they haven't experienced it. But two, they get a sense of, listen, this is really unpredictable. I can't control this thing. Or more importantly, uh, I have, I'm, I'm the one in charge of myself now or this work. And what does it mean for me? Because, you know, here it's people make promises very glibly to things without any real understanding of what that commitment means. What's the responsibility? And that's where most things break down. And so I, I really slow things down at that point and say it's okay not to take responsibility right now. But are we aware that when we do speak, when we claim our freedom, what is the cost to yourself and to the other? And really spend time on that and, and giving enough space for them to to withdraw, to be conservative, to back out. And so when the when the few commitments do come, they are they they're deeper and they're longer lasting. Mm-hmm. So this thing about freedom and responsibility comes up all the time in the work. And uh, that, that I to, in my estimation, that is the real work: freedom, responsibility, commitment. To making it happen and i don't think it's just a local experience a global experience of how it happens and it's because the sense of community and support for the work that you're doing has not been worked with deeply enough so we have a semblance of community but the reality is that the actual work of building the social fabric is not deeply embedded and, and th- i think that's the work that needs to get done you know, we talk about A, B, C, D and uh, abundance, the principles, but until it becomes a lived experience, problems, what's and all, for many people, it still remains uh, something to reach for. So a lot of the work for us is trying to give them some a task that gives them the opportunity to experience the elements we speak about in Peter's conversations. About, about dissent, about possibility, about all the things in a real way in terms of the actual project. And that way it, it gets bedded down. But even having said that, the, our thing is also that the unpredictably means that projects will fail, people will fall down. Mm-hmm. And to understand that it's okay. No one's gonna kill you for that. You know, this happens in the work and just to even accept that because failure is a big thing here. Uh, you know, yeah. everybody wants to blame you for something, and the notion actually is our it's our failure together or our success together. What does that mean for us? So it's the, it's those ongoing conversations about whenever something comes up, to use it as a learning point, very experientially, and 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 stop that voice of judgment, stop that thing of yes and no, of winning and losing, and shift that culture into the place of we and the work. That that really is the work, in my estimation, what we have to do. Tell and us it's hard. So, so tell me a little bit about uh, about failure then that you've learned from. Failure for me is, you know, very often linked 
to places where partners that came into a community uh, came with either money or resources and the contracting was flawed in terms of how it was done. And so you have a recipient and a donor, a giver of something. Would really, if you look at the, the you know, what, what the, and these projects are almost always time bound. Uh. They, they never have enough traction to leave anything permanent in the community. And so people get cynical. So, what, so you, you'll find many communities, uh, halls that were built that are now in disuse, not used. Uh, projects started uh, with young people, and halfway through the project, when the money runs out, the kids are left alone. Those are the kind of failures. So people have learned, I think, how to play the game. If uh, people come with money, uh-huh. they'll find a way to get the money. The donor is happy because they've got a time-bound project with some deliverables. And so we all become complicit in the game. And, and at the end of it, it's a community that loses by it, but some individuals will gain something from it. So, so failure is very often, I think, the, the inability... Uh, to contract authentically about what it is we each want from the relationship. And, and, and those failures have come. They've come in our schools. You know, we try to, try to work in a school and outside actors come in, uh, powers that are beyond us uh, at a higher level, you know, very much like your, your schools back home in the U.S. as well. Layers and layers and layers of power and hierarchy and patriarchy. So even when you work... Uh, quite authentically at the level of the school. The school itself is part of a bigger system, uh, which is so monstrous that you can't get through it. And you just have to keep... So sometimes I even question the work. You know, you work, you motivate the teachers, you get the staff, you bring the community, and then you get this bloody thing that just keeps hitting you from the top of saying, no, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't. And that's that's an ongoing frustration. So, and, And the thing for us is to accept that failure... It's not, not just the falling down. It's being able to get yourself up and take responsibility and do something else, find another way through it. And it's not either or. It's, there's always something that you can do. Uh, anything as opposed to standing still. So if you stand still, the notion of, of victimhood gets more deeply embedded. And then there are enough people to come and save you after that. While they don't name it directly, Peter Welter and John's work really talks about giftedness or calling forth gifts as almost a response to that age-old temptation to fall into the narrative of victimhood that Rama is talking about. In their book, Abundant Community, John McKnight and Peter describe associations in this way. They say associations are a primary place in community where individual capacities get expressed. If I want to manifest my kindness or generosity and I want to do it in a collective way, then I create or join an association. Association is a structural property of a competent community. It's the aspect of community that's repeatable. It has continuity and it has membership. Otherwise, it's just a meeting. And they continue, if you and I want to have breakfast together, good. If we want to ask two friends to join us and have breakfast every month, then we're an association. You can tell who is in an association because an association has boundaries. There was a, there was a one case in the township that we worked in, uh, again, as a community gathering. First, and we asked them, so what can you do? Uh, and the thing was, again, you had no money and resources. And so we did an audit of, audit of what gifts were in the room. We put that up on the board and we saw it there and we spent two days clustering and getting people to talk around those themes. And, and the one thing that stands out for me is the one guy who says, you know, he had the most beautiful garden 
in Kwamakuta. Mm -hmm. he, he wasn't a botanist. He just, he loved his garden, was the pride that everyone knew about his garden. So th there was the I. Mm -hmm. And so the notion was, so you love gardening. Uh, how can we use this amazing gift to start to beautify this township? Because the townships are very stark. You know, rows of houses, very little greenery. And so they started a, a, a little street committee. So, so I said, okay, so what if you just take just your street and we convene a group in your street, just for the houses there, and see whether we can form, make that street the best garden place in the township. And, and we laughed about it and we said, okay, so how, you know, how, how can we do this? So they convened the meeting uh, there were six families present there, and of course he felt really good because he was strutting his stuff. Yeah. And and the idea was simply let's just first clean up our street. There were uh, 18 houses in that little street. It killed his socks. It was perfect. And they started doing that. So they on one Saturday they got together with the kids and just cleaned the street up. And then they wanted to get plants. So I said, how the hell do you get trees and plants here? So some said, you know, why didn't we ask the the, the city. Mm -hmm. And someone said, the usual system, don't waste your time, they, they will do nothing. But of course, it wasn't true. Uh, so they approached the city, helped them draft a letter to the city, telling them what they're trying to do, send a couple of photographs through. And the next week, the guy from the, who runs our botanical garden came down to the place. He was blown away by what he saw. He said, <laughs> how we wish more people could do things like this. And, and his big task, how can we help you? And so they brought in uh, tree stock and plants and gave them advice, and that street committee started to flourish from that. From that project, we went through a tree planting situation in Kwamakut. So got the group together, and we joined them. And 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 what what the city did was they came out with their with their, their back toe anything and and help us dig dig the big holes. Mm -hmm. And we put the trees in, and we told the house whose tree was planted in front, you take responsibility for this tree. Just this one tree. Wow. Make sure at the end of the day, you water this tree. You know, can you do that? Oh, no, of course we can do that. Well, if you look at the township now, those trees are all flourishing. And even the sense of, of taking care of the trees and, you know, with each other, the sense of the we is slowly coming because people are noticing that the trees are there. As you're starting at that smaller scale, then this builds to an authentic ask because it isn't asking right. the city for a handout of a tree. It's asking the city for the city's leverage to be able to steward a tree. And then this moves from that community into the entire city, entire town. And absolutely. And that, I think that, that, you know, what we're trying to do always when we form these committees is to, is to talk about this notion of shared leadership. And, you know, what does it mean? Do we need a leader here? There's five of you. Do you need a leader? Do you need a convener? What is the purpose? And so in defining that, they start talking about stewardship without mentioning the word. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, sometimes the words get in the way of the work. So now I'm a steward. So it becomes another... <laughs> Don't call me a leader. I'm a steward. Put it on my name tag. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the notion of saying we are a group, we each have responsibilities. And at some point, when we start to go back they will begin to see that, in fact, they are acting more in the role as stewards. Uh, they are taking responsibility for a small area of work and that notion of shared leadership. So as new members come in, they come in as members of that cohort, you know, with what value they bring into it. Mm -hmm. and, and so very slowly something 
starts to happen, and we hear it in the stories, and the many projects that, that they're doing at the moment. And the interesting for us, they don't even feel the need to tell us about their projects. You know, we, we hear about it anecdotally. They're building a school hall, and they say, actually, we don't need to tell you. You started your work, now we're doing our work. We got it. We got it from you. Here. Know, yeah, yeah, we got yeah, it. So yeah. it's okay. Let it go. It's outstanting. So ego uh, takes a bit of a bash because, we, you know, you say, wow, you guys are doing great work. But then it becomes, for them, the norm. Uh, that's how they work. The committees function the same way. You go into that township, they're always meeting in small groups. So we've trained uh, community facilitators in the methodology. Mm-hmm. And we support them. So, you know, little things that they need a little. So we got at DDP a number of portable battery charge PA systems. Oh, sure. So people, so people can be heard. We negotiate with churches so that we can use their halls for free and with the city. So cut the costs down, work on local catering and local production. Everything that we, that you know, that Peter speaks about, John, we want to live into that as best as we can. It's not always possible to the extent we'd like it to be, mm-hmm. but just the notion of that let's first use what we have before we go out to buy from somewhere else or anything like that. And so, and it takes a, a good time for that to get embedded in the community that we, we have gifts, we have abundance here. Raman Adu, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure having you in our city and, uh, and having this conversation with you today. Being present at that first, uh, first meeting was, was deeply symbolic, that people could come together with no other intention except doing something bigger than themselves to make this a better world. That's, that's a huge, huge thing. And so many of them. I think there are many like-minded people who would like to do something but don't have... The, the structure or the convening of the gathering for that to happen. I think my life's purpose is to ignite those kind of spaces to bring people together, like you did in Cincinnati. We make way for the newness. And the way we do that is by gathering like-minded people together to just get out and do the work. This has been the Common Good Podcast, conversations at the intersection of place and belonging and remembering. You can learn more about the work of Rama Nadu as well as the work of Peter, John, and Walter, and now the Common Good Fellowship in daily food for thought emails at commongood.cc. Common Good is a collaborative production of The Hive, a center for contemplation, art, and action in Cincinnati, as well as Common Change, eliminating personal economic isolation. We're produced by myself, Troy Bronsink, and Joey Taylor. Music is written and produced by Jeff Gorman. So we're nine episodes into this Common Good podcast thing, and if you're starting to feel intimidated by all the ideas, take Rama's word for it. They didn't think it possible. They also think it's rocket science. Yeah. Until they learn that, that, the, that the methodology, which is, is actually quite simple, convene the damn group, put them in small groups, and make them talk. <laughs> this is. <laughs>